I want to talk with you about the subject as you see, what is man that thou art mindful of him from the book of Hebrews. Uh, I did pretty much the same material two or three years ago, but in thinking about what we, what we talked about two weeks ago when we were here, uh, before we went away for a week, and then some things that happened during our trip to the Creation Museum and the Ark, I thought I'd talk about this subject again. Because we did refer to this passage in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, about the relationship between God and man, what man means to God, and as opposed to what some people think they do. But I think this is a very critical and important subject, especially in light of of the general things that were brought to us every day. I would call the ocean that we swim in as Americans, as modern people. We swim in this ocean of, of naturalism and of humanism, and so we sometimes are unaware of how much we are influenced by this. And yet this is something I'm going to be speaking a lot about over the coming months and years, maybe because it's something that is so important, is the difference between a, a, a Christian worldview, we might call it, and a worldly or secular worldview. It's a profound difference. It makes a difference in almost everything that we think and do. And we as Christians cannot afford to be, to drift into a secular worldview in the way we approach life. And so we're going to talk about that and in various forms and various ways. This is a good place to start. By the way, this picture that you're looking at is, came out a few, maybe last year, a couple years ago. This is the first direct visual evidence of a black hole. They theorize about these things and from certain theories, and this is the first visual evidence. Uh, its shadow has been revealed today by astronomers, the article said. The image is of a supermassive black hole that lies at the center of the huge Messier 87 galaxy and the Virgo galaxy cluster. Can you imagine a cluster of galaxies? This is what we're talking about. That's, that's, a, that's probably the most astounding phrase in this article. Located 55 million light years from Earth, the black hole has been determined to have a mass 6.5 billion times that of the sun. Now, by the way, a light year is a, a measurement of distance. It isn't a measurement of time. A light year is the distance that light travels in a vacuum in one year, which is about 5.88 trillion miles, okay, or basically 6 trillion miles. Now listen, there's no way a human being can conceive of the number trillion. Some of us can't even conceive of the number 100 if we're talking about dollars. You know. But uh, when you get up into billions, we have a very, we have a very difficult we can think about it. We can imagine a, a stack of papers that goes up to the uh, you know, top of the Empire State Building and we can talk about those numbers, but we can't really conceive of a billion. Do you know billions of cells in your body die every day and are replenished. And there there's a mechanism they've just discovered by which cells signal that they're dead or damaged and then another cell comes along and devours them. All by accident, of course, all got here without any thought process. Little window that opens on the side of the cell that says, I'm dying and I'm dead or something's wrong with me. My genetic code has been altered. Come kill me. And uh, billions of these cells die every year and every day in your body. And it's all taken away. You don't even know this is happening. But we don't know. We can't conceive of the number trillion, much less six trillion, much less 55 times six trillion miles away, but that's what they're seeing here. Now I want to look at something, I think I've, I'm sure I've shown you this before, just to give you a relative idea of the size of things. 
Here we have, where's my stick? I'm going to get my red laser pointer out here. You know, you can't, I got laser pointers up here, but they do no good on this screen whatsoever. You know, they're not good for that. So here is, I'm sorry it's so grainy. I thought it, would, it looks perfect up here. The Earth, and then the other planets in the solar system, Venus, Mars, Mercury. Planets are around our size. You're just a tiny speck over here. You, you can't even, you can't, you can only see things like the Astrodome and maybe the pyramids from outer space. A few other things can be seen. Um, apparently, some cell phone lights on some brands advertising, you see that. But, but then you go a little further out from some of the other planets. And so here's the Earth that you just saw. Here's these other planets. And then you got Neptune, I mean, Jupiter, I mean, and Saturn and Neptune and so forth. You have these other planets. That, that begins. Now then, you jump out a little further. So then you've got the Sun. Jupiter is one pixel in size. Can't be shown on here. The Earth certainly can't be shown on this scale. You got the Sun, Sirius, Pollux, and then Octurus, another fairly large star that's out there. These are things we can measure. Now you go a little further, and the Jupiter is invisible, and here is the Sun. It's one pixel big on this screen. And then you got these other stars. Betelgeuse and, and Teres, the other size of some of the other stars that we can see in the sky, that we can measure their light and so forth. That's astounding, isn't it? That doesn't even take into account the distances that these things are from us. So here's a picture of a spiral galaxy. From what we can tell, our galaxy that we're in, we're in one of the arms or of one of, of the Milky Way galaxy. Have you ever seen the Milky Way at night in a dark place? It's astounding just to see that one arm of this galaxy around us, how bright it is, how many stars are in this galaxy of ours. But this is a galaxy like ours. There's no way we can take a picture of our galaxy. It's just simply, I don't, you can say, well, that's going to happen someday, but that's a long someday away for us to be able to get outside our galaxy and take a picture and then send it back to Earth and somehow understand what that is. Can't be done. There's a ship, what is those two ships, the Voyagers, was sent out when I was a teenager or something like that. They're sending back pictures still. They've they've gone into interstellar space recently, relatively recently. They finally have been able to leave our solar system and have gone into interstellar space and measured some of the solar winds out there at the edge of our solar system. But we're not not even in, in any conceivable way ever to be able to take a picture of our galaxy. But here's one like ours that contains billions of stars, not thousands, billions. And there's so many stars that they just look like a cloud around there. Some of that is a cloud. And then here's a picture I found recently. This is the deepest image yet of the universe from some telescope, Hubble, I think. When you go out as far as we can get an image that we've ever been able to take and send back and, and process, this is one piece of that image and it still shows thousands of galaxies in that tiny little sliver of the sky when you go that far out beyond our comprehension and this distance is probably incomprehensible here that you can conceive of 
So here's what Carl Sagan about says about man and about the universe. You know, he's a, I call him the former atheist Carl Sagan because he died a few years ago. Former atheist. We live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star. You see the earth is pretty average or below average in size. I mean, the sun is an average intensity star that's of average size in the universe, isn't special in any way, except that it keeps us alive. Other than that, it's not special. Humdrum star, one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of other galaxies which make up a universe which may be a very large number, perhaps an infinite number of universes, Carl Sagan says. Well, we have no proof of anything like multiverses. but they got multiverses so that they can explain what the beginning was without a beginning, without a God. That's a, that is a perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. And I think that's right, but not for the reason that Carl Sagan does. He thinks it's well worth pondering because it shows that human beings are completely insignificant. And uh, just one of many species on earth and in the universe, nothing special about human beings at all. That's why we should ponder this. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but when when someone like Carl Sagan looks up into the sky and he sees this, and he knows more about it than I do, knew more about it, he just thinks of the vastness and loneliness. And what's tempting, and there's been books written about this by unbelievers, to say we're alone. The feeling that people like him get in this is that we're all alone. And they're searching so hard for extraterrestrial life. Searching so hard in every place they can think, every speculation they can make, unscientific probabilities to make that there has to, there just has to be life in outer space. Why? Why does there have to be life in outer space? Only so we're not alone. But when I look up at the sky, you and I look up and we say, how great thou art. We know we're not alone. That's a huge difference. A, 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 a chasm of a difference in worldviews. Now, he, he goes on to say, the universe is a pretty big place. If it's just us, it seems an, like an awful waste of space. He gets to define what a waste is. He gets to define what the word awful is. And he gets to decide with his little puny mind that group come out of the moss or the ground and is so tiny in this universe what he thinks an awful waste of space is. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big statement for someone who is so insignificant, isn't it? To make that kind of statement, it's an awful waste of space. He also says for small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. I love that quote from Carl Sagan. It exposes so much of this problem. What I would say if I, and like I say, he's much more brilliant than I, but if I were, but even in my ignorant little primitive Christianity way, I would say, so Carl, define love for me. Can you give me any rational definition of love given your worldview? Since it's only bearable through love, what is there to bear? Snails don't bear anything. They're just snails. Humans are just pieces of life 
accidentally that came here on a speck in an endless galaxy or many multiverses of galaxies, of multiverses. And I need you to define love for me because are you, are, are you saying that love is something different than just a chemical reaction or the combination of electrons that's in your mind and in your brain? What is love? You see, I have an answer to that. As simplistic as he would think I am and you are, as backward and primitive as we are who believe in God, we have an answer to what love is. And we know that it means more than, than atoms and molecules and processes and electrons. But I want him to define that for me. And I've not read that definition yet that doesn't border on God in some way. That's what we're talking about in the Michelin Radio that showed this morning. What you find in these books like this, even I don't can't prove I don't know if Carl Sagan did this in his writing, so I don't want to attribute that to him. There are many others. They begin the book talking about this universe that can exist and doesn't. We don't have any need for God at all in our world because we can explain everything we think without God. But before it's over, they, they, they talk a lot about nature and then they begin to capitalize the word nature with a capital N. And when I was debating people like this, I refused to let them go capitalize the word nature or evolution or capitalize any of these words. Because as soon as I begin to capitalize them all, they are making them God. That's what they're doing with it. Just like I capitalize the word God when I talk about God. So if, the, if for such small creatures, such as we are, the vastness is bearable only through love, I think in the end a lot of these fellows, and Stephen Hawking was one who basically would say the universe is cold and heartless and there's nothing there except cold indifference to you. There is no such thing as love. You just have this feeling because of a combination of, of chemicals and electrons and they give you a psychological feeling about love, but it's not really there. Carl Sagan says, if God is omnipotent and omniscient, why didn't he start the universe out in the first place so it would come out the way he wants? Hmm, okay. You you know how God wanted. Well, why why is he constantly repairing and complaining? No, there's one thing the Bible makes clear. The biblical God is a sloppy manufacturer. He's not good at design. He's not good at execution. He'd be out of business if there was any competition. As I said, the former atheist may have changed his mind about that. But the fact is, what he's seeing here is what we're talking about in the book of Genesis. That the world is not as it was in the beginning. And the world is not as God intended at the beginning because of sin. Because of people's rebellion against God. And he made a world where people and animals have free choice to do things that they want to do. But he, he even goes so far in his sciencey explanations of things to cast aspersions on the ability of God, all while touting the ability of human beings to fix problems. You know, God is so big, I put the word big in quotes because that doesn't even make sense in this sentence, but maybe you'll understand it. God is so big that he dwarfs the universe that he made. There's not even... We can't even conceive of what he is really like because the Bible pictures as part of the biblical worldview that God is not the things that he made. What you're seeing in the universe and all that big expanse is not God. He lives outside of that. He exists separate and apart from what he made. 
Now, pantheists and Buddhists and other people like that believe that that's all there is, is what you see is what is. And they would say that the trees are God. You know, Disney puts out the movie Pocahontas and the tree is God and the rocks are God and all this kind of stuff. That pantheistic idea, which is very common today. The Bible doesn't teach you anything like that. It says God made the world outside of himself. And he controls what goes on in the universe. And one day he will says he will fold up the universe like an old garment and put it away because it's done its purpose. And he'll, or another picture says he'll burn it up with fervent heat. And he, he moves these giant pieces of great distance around as he chooses. All the galaxies move in motion. We have a song in our songbook. Um, now I can't think of the name of it. I want to say joyful, joyful, we adore thee. But it pictures, that's not it. The spacious firmament on high. We don't sing it because we don't have the parts to sing the spacious firmament. Oh, I should get Gary to lead that after the song. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, you, you could, you could, don't, don't do it. Well, you can do it if you want to. But what, what it says is that the whole universe essentially is singing to God and all the pieces move in harmony to his will as he made them. And you see this throughout the universe. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, O Jehovah, our Lord, is how it really says, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the work the heavens, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? When I look up at the sky, this ancient man, the psalmist David, when I look up, I see this. I have the same problem that Carl Sagan had. When I look up, doesn't Carl Sagan look at the heavens and say, what is man? Isn't that what he was saying? I look up and I see this and I say, what is man? And David had the same reaction. But the two different worldviews take them in two different directions when they see the heavens and think about what is man. What is man that you that you care about him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas." By the way, that verse, that last one is another verse that I think from what I've read helped people really discover that inside the seas there were pathways called currents that stayed where they were, like the Gulf Stream, which people didn't know about for a long time, but that's it. I want to go back. In Isaiah chapter 40, I did a little bit out of order. In a bigger context, Isaiah puts it this way. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, all the oceans? Can you put all the oceans in the hollow of your hand? This is that big God I was talking about. Measure the heaven with a span. A span is, is how, how you measure things with your hands, you know. We went up to the ark exhibit. Uh, I, I was telling them that a lot of people put the idea of the, of a cubit and the ark measurement is about this distance. All humans have, you know, have this distance. And on me, that's about 18 inches. Some say it's as long as 20 inches on, on some humans. So they may use 20, 20 inches for a cubit. That's about an inch on me right there, that distance. So I go to Home Depot, measure things with my thumb or my hand. And this is a span. 
you know, however long this is on units, eight, what, seven or eight inches. He says he, he can measure the heavens with just a span, calculate the dust of the earth in a measure, take a measuring cup, get a little flour, sift it out, get what you want, pour it in the bowl. Here's all the earth, all the dust of the earth. God is able with his power to treat that as if it's something he measured out in a little measuring spoon. Weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Isaiah is picturing for these people the true God of heaven as opposed to the false gods that they were worshiping who can't conceive of any of these things. But the true God of heaven is far beyond our understanding. And that's why when you say, look at the heavens, who is this man that you're mindful of? What is man? And that's a good question because that's that's the question of the age. And especially since Darwin in our modern times came along and said man is nothing but one of the apes and the other animals grown up. It, that's been the question before Western society and really all of society. What is man? That God or anybody should care about him. And so we've seen so many people. You know, more people were killed in the 20th century than in all the other centuries before that put together. Killed by totalitarian governments like Germany's not, not, uh, National Socialists and like Mao Zedong and like the Russians. Millions of people put to death all by godless regimes who believed in evolution and all those kind of things because they thought that man was only something to be controlled. The other human people on the earth were to be controlled and shown what to do. Their their ideas were founded upon Darwinism. All the experiments done, even in our country, on black people, were done done from eugenics, which is a byproduct of evolution. The abortion industry in this country is based on the idea of eugenics and evolution, starting in the 1850s. And all that stuff is related. That's why some people call it the culture of death, because that's what it ends up being. Now, I know that there are counter-arguments to all of those things. I understand that. But I'm telling you that general worldview is coming from one place. And it all starts with the question, what is man? As I mentioned on the radio show this morning, and I've talked about it several times here before, I'm still waiting for an answer. How is it that people who believe in evolution can tell me that all men are created equal? How can that be? Now, the Bible says that. The Bible says we're all of one race. We all came from two parents, and God made of one blood all men on the earth. And we say we believe that all men are created equal, but I can tell you, the Marxists and Leninists who are controlling some of the movements in our society and have for a long time, they do not have any basis at all to believe that all men are created equal. In fact, they don't believe that because they don't believe what the Scripture says about man. But what is man? Who is he? Are, are all men created equal? Are all of us in the image of God? Are all of us made a little lower than the angels? Those are important questions for society. And you can't answer those with a, in a test tube. You can find out about a lot of stuff, but those are other kinds of questions. The Bible says that man is lower than God but crowned with glory, he says. This is a true picture of man. It's an accurate picture of human beings and human race. We are not gods. We are not only spirit creatures. We're creatures with a body and a spirit. And we have, we, we are made in the image of God, but lower than God. We are never going to be God. We would like to be God, but we're never going to be God. We have to accept that's who we are as human beings. Oh, we go around parroting and yeah, we all make mistakes. We're all only human. But we don't live like that. We live as if we get to control our life 
and can decide what we ought to do without anybody any help. When people begin to talk to me about, yeah, I'm only human, I make mistakes, I kind of, I get, I wonder about that. Do they, because some of the people saying this to me are the ones that are for sure going to do what they want to do all the time. And they get to make their own mistake. What they're saying is, I get to do what I want. If I make, mess up, then I'm only, I'm only accountable to myself. We are lower than God, but we're crowned with glory. Human beings have a glory that is different than the glory of all the animals. It's different than anything else on earth. It's attached to the glory of God. We're made in His image. And He crowned us with glory. And for you as a human being, for you to interact with your fellow man on whatever level, whoever it may be, whether it's someone who has great power over you in the government or in your business, or whether it's the guy sleeping under the bridge, all those people are crowned with glory. And you have to treat them a certain way and interact with them a certain way because they were given glory by God and that's your responsibility. Now this is a Christian worldview. This is not a Buddhist worldview. Not a Hindu worldview. Not a secular worldview. This is a biblical worldview about man. Now unfortunately, people who claim to believe the Bible haven't always understood or lived up to that. But that doesn't change what the Bible says. Just because we got phony baloney preachers out there and other theologians and hypocrites all over the place doesn't mean that God's word is not true. Let God be true and every man a liar. God's word is true. And that's what it says about man. You see. And then he gave man dominion over the earth. That's how important man is to God. He gave him dominion over the earth. doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want because in everything that man does, man is under God's control, under God's direction. When, when an unbeliever hears that man has dominion over the earth, since, since he doesn't believe there's anything over him, since he doesn't believe there's anybody he's accountable to, he thinks I can do whatever I want to the earth. God doesn't say that in the Bible at all. He, you have no right to treat animals any way you want to just because you're a human being. On the other hand, don't worship animals. I think, um, who was it that said this? I think it was uh, G.K. Chesterton said that wherever animals are worshipped, humans get sacrificed. Why don't you think about that for a moment? He said this back in the early 1900s, late 1800s. Whenever men worship animals, humans end up being sacrificed. You know, sometimes just put on a pillar and let on fire, have their throat slit. That's what ancient cultures did when they worshipped animals, isn't it? The humans end up getting thrown off cliffs and into volcanoes. Now what do we see today before us among humans? We don't do as much of that outwardly as you would think. But when people have, now that people have begun to worship animals, guess who's going to be the one that suffers? Human beings are. And we see this all around us. They have no problem sacrificing human beings for their worldly, because they don't have the, they don't have the order of the universe correct. Man has dominion over the earth. He is to use the earth for the benefit of other human beings. And you know, humans have done a pretty good job of that in many ways. All this stuff that you see before here that we fool around with all the time, all that's because man's learned how to use sand and silicon. Who would have ever thunk that? That we could use silicon to transmit all this stuff and make these chips and do everything we do. And my watch is telling me it's time to get busy to end this sermon. And that's got silicon chips in it too. That's pretty good dominion over the earth, I would think. You don't get any more basic than sand. So we've done some wonderful things. And I'm all in favor of that 100%. 
But please do not forget that there's someone above us who's controlling how we have this dominion and what we say about these things. You know, man is lower than God. He has dominion and man indeed has been visited by God. There's the thing. What is man that you visit him? David asks. And we see this in John 1. But indeed, this God that created the worlds and without Him, nothing was made that was made, the Bible says, by this Word of God, that this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The book of Hebrews in chapter 2 basically says that He took on flesh and blood so He could become a brother to us. Whatever form we had, the Son of God, this Word of God, took on that same form and He now has flesh and blood. And that's the great sacrifice that He never gets rid of that. He'll always have an eternity flesh and blood, not a human body. Flesh and blood been, that's been made into a new body like ours will be. This flesh and blood, if I'm faithful to Christ, will be made into a new body in heaven, just like Christ's body. Verse John 3 says that. What is man? Well, I'll tell you what. He never promised to come and save the great apes. As much as we liked them, much as we like Flipper and the Dolphins, God never sent His Son to save them. I don't even know if they need to be saved. But He didn't send them for that. He didn't send us to save any of these things. He didn't send His Son to save any of these things. He, his Son did not become a gorilla or a great ape. Didn't happen. I don't, I'm not being sacrilegious here. I'm trying to point out something to you. That if you believe in Christ, you have to understand the significance of that. He came and became a human being and shared in flesh and blood. And then more importantly, Hebrews chapter 2, it says in beginning in verse 5, for, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, for he has put the world to come, he had not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Angels are great powerful beings, greater than any, if an angel appeared in this room in any sense of like it, they really are, we would all fall down like we were dead. That's how great they are. When, when people have seen these angels in some semblance of their real form, not just as a human being, they fall down to try to worship them. That's what that's what John did when he saw the angel in the book of Revelation. He fell down to worship. And the angel picked him up and said, do not do it. Worship God, he said. Do not do this thing. Worship God. But we're so much lower than the angels, and yet he did not put the world of this to come in the dominion of angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, and this is Psalm 8 where we were just reading, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you are to take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subject under his feet for in that he put all things in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. He says, God said he put all things in subjection to man and yet we see that that's not entirely true. The one thing that humans can't control is death. After the Garden of Eden, man cannot stop death. Death has dominion over us. So all these are the things we can make all this wonderful stuff out of the sand of the sea, but we can't stop from dying. We can't stop our children from dying. We can't stop any of our loved ones. We can't stop ourselves from dying. I don't care if you've got the best insurance in the world and the best doctors, you're going to die. And you know that. You don't need me to tell you that. We like to put, brush it off and make jokes about it. But he says we see something that's not in our control. But we see this thing we're not in control of. But we see Jesus 
who was made a little lower than the angels, just like us, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He came and tasted death for everyone. The only problem with that is that not everyone will take advantage of that fact. But he died for everyone. In spite of what the Calvinist, the L and Tulip, it means limited atonement, this verse says. It doesn't say every one of the elect, which is what Calvinists would say, but it says for everyone. For it was fitting for him, it says in verse 10 of Hebrews 2, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I will declare your name to my brethren, this speaking of Christ in prophecy. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And he says, here, in the, here am I and the children of God who was given me. And now he goes in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So we can't control death. This long explanation, the writer of Hebrews says, but what he's done is he brought Christ into the world as a man lower than the angels so that he might redeem all of us who live in the fear of death. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. I will stop there for sake of time in reading this. But I want you to think about that last statement as I mentioned to you before. I think that's an a very comforting thing to me. When angels sinned against God, it just says he cast them down in chains of darkness to be reserved until the judgment. There is a place already prepared for the wicked angels who sinned against him and rebelled against him. And he offered them nothing, no shred of grace, no shred of change, no hope of ever being redeemed. They were simply cast down in darkness as they well deserved. But, there's that most important word in the Bible almost, the word but. But, he does not give help to angels, but to the seed of Abraham. If you and I are sons of Abraham by faith, by faith in that he would bring the promised Messiah through Abraham, and we're seeds, we're, we're sons of this promise, he sent his son lower than the angels to die for us and to give us aid. When man sinned against God, just like the angels did, he offered his own son as aid. He did not do this with angels. Now, now, what is man then? Is man, like Carl Sagan says, nothing? Infant, just a, a speck in the universe that counts for nothing? Not according to this verse, he's not. As small as he may be compared to Betel Goose and all the other un- galaxies and stars, he's so important that man, God sent his son for him. And that means you. That means the most important humans. It means the ones under the bridge. God sent His Son for all those people. The question is only whether we will respond to that. That's the only question that's left for us. And that's why the last chapter in the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any opens the door, I will enter in and dwell with him. So as we close our service this morning, And as we think about some of these things, I want you to contemplate that. That idea of whether you're going to 
respond to Jesus Christ and whether or whether you're going to continue on your own way thinking you can decide things for yourself. Some people rebel against God by not believing in Him and by ignoring Him and going about their life and arrogantly deciding whatever they're going to do. Uh, not all people are like that by any means. Most of us try to have our own way with God and religion. We try to sneak the religion in and we still don't do what God says. We do what we want to do about it, make up our own minds. But this is about putting, bowing the knee to Christ himself and doing what he wants you to do. So this morning, if we can pray with you because you've wandered away from the Lord and you need prayers for that, or maybe this morning, even if you're just troubled by the things in your life that you need to have comfort and help with, we can pray with you about that. And if you sin, God will forgive you. If you're not even a Christian, never have named his name and repented and believed and been baptized for the mission of sins, we can help you with that too. All things are ready if you are. We'll be glad to help you. Come to the front right now as we stand and sing.